Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast, the official podcast of Irreverent Warriors. I'm your host, Kevin Sullivan. Tonight's episode features Scott Husing. Scott is a retired Marine Corps infantry major with 24 years of experience both enlisted and as a commissioned officer. As a Marine Corps infantry officer in 2006, Scott was privileged to command Echo Company 2nd Battalion 4th Marines as part of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Scott memorialized his experiences leading the Glorious Bastards in his best-selling book, Echo and Ramadi. I highly recommend you buy this book and check it out. Link will be in the description below. Now for some upcoming hikes, July 11th, Indianapolis, Indiana, July 18th, Reno, Nevada, July 25th, Lincoln, Nebraska, Philadelphia, PA, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Since we're already almost a week into July, I'll go ahead and and uh, announce the first week of August, which is Des Moines, Iowa. For any information on Irreverent Warriors, Silky's Hikes, go over to irreverentwarriors.com. And of course, check out 21gun, spell it out, 21gun.net for everything 21gun. That's all we have for this week. So without further ado, Scott Husing. Let's go. I always start every single one of my my shows with take us back to the day that you're you're in your civilian clothing and you're raising your hand and you're saying the oath of enlistment where what led you up to that? So uh, it's no, it's no secret I uh, was not a great high school student uh, whatsoever, Kevin, and barely squeaked out of high school with a stellar 1.24 GPA. I, don't, I challenge any listener to the show if they can top that, let me know. But uh, that led me into the Marine Corps, and like most people that joined the military, I got roped in by a good friend. And he introduced me to the Marine recruiters. And, you know, when you walk into the recruiting office, it's, you know, decorated. They got the posters. It's real glamorous. They're wearing their uniforms with their medals and ribbons. And all, all that looked really exciting to me. But also, these guys, the game that they talk was so impressive. It was a, a really natural fit for me because they appeared to be this great big group of risk takers, the Marines. And uh, up until that point, even as a kid, I'd led a pretty high risk life. I rode a motorcycle. That was my first car. And I used to fight and run from the cop. <laughs> so I got caught. Cops. I just, I wasn't uh, under a lot of adult supervision. So the Marines seemed like a really good fit to me. And I enlisted. And shortly thereafter, I, I realized the error of my ways and found the value in a college education. And Went to college, graduated in three years with a much more respectable GPA and did very well and still felt that urge to serve. And that's what led me into my commissioning program as a lieutenant and serving in all the right bills of responsibility. Uh, you know, ultimately in 2006, that's what led me into my company command in the streets of Ramadi, which is what I wrote about in my book, Echo and Ramadi. So that was kind of my introduction to to the Marine Corps, and uh, it's always been a really good fit. And even after you know twenty plus years of, of serving, I was either a Marine or leading Marines the entire time, and it was uh, you know 
it, I have no regrets because I think I did and accomplished a lot of things that most people in the military don't get the opportunity to do. So, some of which I created myself, the opportunities is what I'm speaking of. And I, I've been very fortunate and still, you know, being associated with guys like you and, and uh, Donnie and, and everyone else, I stayed very connected to the, to the veteran and military community. And, and I think that that is one thing that really sustains me. Uh, you know, I think what we have to tell the listeners is the military teaches a lot of things. One of them is perseverance. So this is, I think, our fourth or fifth attempt at getting this oh, yeah. podcast. This is, and we were supposed and to running. be, we were supposed to be face to face at my hotel room across from a uh, movie premiere where Joe Rogan was going to be at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were supposed to do the movie premiere, and it was working out good. I was shooting a, a commercial that next day, and. That's really, I knew it was going to pop up, but that's when the, the COVID-19 popped up and, and that put the, the kibosh on everything going yeah. on. And I just heard on the news today, all the filming and everything in Hollywood is is still held in abatement. I talked to Vinny Vargas just the other day and I, you know, I said, hey, are you going to start filming Mines again? He's like, nah, no word. So it's it really has change the way we do business, but even via phone, man, something has always come up. So this is a epic... Yeah, yeah. This shouldn't be happening. Of perseverance. You know? <laughs> this podcast up and running, man. I love it. You know, you just roll with the punches. I don't think a lot of listeners, uh, maybe who are diehard po- podcast listeners, really understand kind of the mechanics that go into it. And as a guy that co-hosts the Break It Down show with Pete Turner, uh, you know, everybody's got lives and wives and kids and and life to to circle navigate around and then you have to do all the editing and and everything just get one show up and uh yeah yeah it's a challenge sometimes but this it's it's good to be on man i'm grateful a lot of people don't realize like i was just talking to our marketing guy the other day and i was like do you realize for one interview i have to read a book and due to my schedule that book could take a hundred hours right then i have to write the questions (laughs) then i have to record recording might be an hour might be two hours then i have to listen to that recording at least three minutes for every one minute I record or three times for every one minute I record it, it in the end, each episode takes a lot of friggin' work. It's not just hit record and pub- uh, some people do that. Uh, they don't last very yeah. long because <laughs> it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to listen to those shows, but yeah, we made it happen. Uh, and then I understand you did a, a silky side, right? Not too long ago. Uh, I didn't hike. Uh, I got invited out. Uh, we, I did the awards presentation with our good friend, uh, Rudy Reyes, uh, we showed up, gave some books away. Rudy gave a little moto talk. I gave a little moto talk. Uh, it was down in Oceanside, California, and uh, linked up with the crew. And Donnie and I had been associated, and I think we met actually up at the premiere, finally, of, of Semper Fi, what, okay. that Rudy was in. He did some consulting, and Jai Courtney was a star in so that's when me and Donnie first met. And then you know how it is. It's, it's the name game where, you know, we know everybody. And, you know, he's just, oh, man, we'd love to have you come out. And, and uh, so I had done a book signing that morning in Oceanside with a bunch of other veteran authors, uh, Rudy being one of them. And so I had each one of those veteran authors sign a copy of their books. And we got like three sets of books. So the top three finishers of the Silkies Hike. Uh, all got a, a set of books that I presented to them. It was it was cool, you know. And I I, I love what they're doing. I, I think it's uh, you know it's not a, a it's a bad pun, but it's very boots on boots on the ground. You know, yeah. they're hiking, but 
they stay very connected to the local communities. They parade through with the flags and then their silkies and everybody sees the impact that they're making. And I, and I think that's really important. And I think that's kind of good to, not just for the veterans that are hiking for their own health and, and mental well-being, mm -hmm. but the the general public to see how connected our veteran community is. And, and you know, that, that takes commitment uh, to get up on a Saturday morning and to hike, you know, whatever, five, 10, 15 miles and and put it out there, I think is is really something that I respect because there's so many veteran nonprofits out there. I mean, I run savethebrave.org, which helps veterans with post-traumatic stress as well. And we've been doing that for five years. So everybody's got their thing, you know, and whenever there's an opportunity where I can jump in and, and, and help support another veteran org that's doing great things, I, I just love doing it. Yeah. Uh, Irreverent Warriors does a great job at, at bridging that gap, at uh, bringing people together on both sides. So so uh, it's interesting you brought up, you know, being a co-host on a podcast. Uh, you also did some content creation with one of the older versions of, uh, I guess we can call it social media. That's writing a book. Now, has that always been in the back of your mind or what, what brought you on to write Echo and Ramadi? Yeah, it's, yeah, that, I get asked that question a lot. But, um, I've always been an artist, more of a, a, a drawing, a printmaker in college and writing kind of came into my life. I always loved to write, but it is also such a portable medium. When I was in the military, I was still able to write and I, I did a lot of op-ed stuff. I wrote some doctrine, I did some technical writing, but it wasn't until I left LA after I retired from the military and, and uh, bought this ranch down here in Southern California and locked myself in my studio and just decided that this story had to be told. And one of the things about writing Echo and Ramadi for me, one of the driving factors, not just to tell the story about this, this historic period of the war was I didn't want to wait. I, I, I didn't want to wait 50 years like our Vietnam vets to share these amazing stories of the heroics and bravery of our young men and women who serve in the military. And again, yeah, you're right. Less than one half of 1% of the entire American population raised their hand and volunteered to serve. So to be able to lock myself here in my studio at this desk for the better part of a year, um, that's what it took me to kind of write the story. Um, but I think after 10 years of fighting, it was the right time because when I did all the interviews with the Marines and the soldiers and the families, who really sit at the front of the stage of the story in Echo Nirmadi, that the fighting is really just the backdrop to the whole story. Because at this point, two years out since we published the book, it's done so well and, and been a number one bestseller so many times. I think the story is really about leadership and, and team building and overcoming adversity and truly this power of human connection that I get emails and, and DMs and IMs and, and we connect through this medium, through podcasting and, and TV and radio. It's been amazing that the effect and impact you can have on total strangers, not to mention the guys I serve with and veterans, but just total strangers who reach out and realize that the things we go through in the military are very applicable to those things that happen in the corporate private sector in the boardroom and those tenets of leadership and how to inspire young people or team members to do the things that you want them to do when 
they don't want to do it. That's really ultimately how we fought and survived through some of the worst conditions of war and, and at the height of the insurgency in Ramadi, Iraq in 2006. Um, but uh, I, that's a long answer to a short question, but I think that there's a lot of layers to why guys will sit down and, and commit a year or two years of their life to, to write a book and also pour a lot of yourself into the story. It takes, uh, it takes a lot of emotion. Uh, it also takes a lot of, I think, uh, self-reflection to to give of yourself i think one of the cool parts of writing the book is going through the editing process with your editor and my my freelance editor came back to me sylvia mendoza and she says yes the story is so great but there's not enough of you in the book and so you really have to dig deep and i think that that that's something if you're a writer if you really want to write a book that's something you really have to be honest with and surround yourself with people that are willing to tell you that there's not enough of this in the story. There's not enough of that in the story. Uh, I mean, I'm currently working on a full-length feature documentary, and my executive producer, Anthony Zucker, who created CSI, he's unvarnished. I mean, that guy will, if it if it looks like a pile, he'll, he'll tell me, he'll call me on the phone and say, hey, you got to dig deeper on this. I want to see this. And that's what's driving that project to be so great. But the book, I think, has been... Uh, it's just been a really humbling experience for me to, from start to finish. Well, there's a saying uh, to be a good writer is to, I, I don't remember how it's put exactly, but it's, it basically gets in to open up your veins and bleed. And especially like even in Echo Ramadi is when people just, they bear their soul to you in their writing and they let you into their weird little world that only they know at the time. And that's a very scary thing. I mean, to be able to put that in out to the world, I, I don't know. I mean, that you gotta have a strong stomach for it, I guess. Yeah, I, you're right. And, and I, I had those apprehensions when I was, when I was writing or, or when I do podcasts too, it, it is difficult uh, to share those things, but I didn't want anyone to pick up, the book and, and you know you look at the cover of it and it's got ass marine it looks like he's gonna kick your door in in the middle of the night and do bad things to you which marines do uh, in <laughs> our turn do but i i wanted them to realize that it's not this sexy bungee cording through skylights with red laser beams and killing bad guys it's it's this intense indescribable friction that occurs where even as a, a commander with plenty of years under my belt, I'm still the guy that is tripping and falling during the attack. And, you know, the radios go down and you, you can't control those things and, and you just can't, but you have to continue to press on. You have to continue to lead to be successful in the fight, uh, in the mission and, and bring as many guys home with you as alive as you can. And those are the things that I really want to talk about. And it's not about me. It's, it's about the, the, Marines and soldiers that I fought alongside and the amazing families that supported us when we fought. I think that's probably the, the most important thing to me that came through in the book. Sure. I mean, it's how your book opens. I mean, you talk about Corporal Libby and, and his mother. And it's like instead of, you know, starting off storming the beaches of Normandy, you start off at I don't remember where that was in your deployment. You know, you, you talk about this, uh, yeah. this situation and you kind of branch on from there and how that made you. No, as a leader. It was uh, it, it was it turned out it was actually the first part of the book that I wrote. But I also felt um, probably one of the most important 
things to communicate is that this is the reality of, of what we have to do to, to make the phone call to the parents of a, of a young Marine that just died in your command. We were only a month into the deployment when we lost our first Marine. It was a couple of weeks actually. Um, and it, you know, how that affected me and to, to share that with everybody. And, you know, when I talk about this power of human connection, I'm still very connected to the Libby's to, to Chris and Jenny and Judd. I, I just flew out to Maine last fall and, and ran the first annual Dustin Libby Memorial run and to stay connected to family. For me, that is so important. And to, sh- to, to make the phone call, not that night in Ramadi, which I had to do, but as I wrote the book and to call the parents to ask their permission to share those stories, man, that, that took a, a lot out of me. Um, because as an artist, especially when you're telling something that's nonfiction, you know, to make that ask, it's, um, it's really tough. I think emotionally, you don't want to come across sounding gratuitous, uh, but really emphasize the importance of why you want to share that part of the story with total strangers. So they understand. And there was a couple of people that were apprehensive about it, but 99.9% of everybody that's written about in, in my book are all willing participants and, and they gave of themselves and of their time and to, to share those stories, not just the Libby's, but um, you know, some of the tragedy afterwards, you know, of Sergeant Licky that took his own life and uh, man, you know, talked to, you know, Bob and Nikki Licky to ask them if I could tell that story in the book. And they told me, you have to share that story. You, you have to write it. And man, I call, if I called them once, I called them probably 50 times because I was just, you know, like, man, can I, can I really write this? Can I really share this part of the story? Cause it was, it was tough, yeah. but um, we did it. And uh, again, we hold the golf tournament every year through save the brave.org. Uh, here in Southern California to honor Sergeant Litke and the parents always fly out. We have a great time. Hundreds of, gol- hundreds of golfers and supporters come out and, you know, we raise money so that uh, we don't have to experience those things that guys are dealing with um, after they come home from war. That's, that's gotta be uh, one of the harder aspects of writing is uh, in nonfiction is telling someone else's story. Uh, how do you approach that? Uh, well, every, I, I, I I've kind of branched out too, and, and I, I may not, this may be a true confession on your show, but I've, I don't advertise it, but I've also been working as an agent for other veteran authors. And we, we've sold a couple books through to my publishing house and a couple others, but um, I think it's just basic writing 101. I, I didn't go to Columbia School of Journalism. I, I was a criminal justice major at Illinois State. And I started off the hard way and it may sound kind of rudimentary, but I dumbed it down. It's like, Google it, how to write a book, Google (laughs) it. How many chapters are Google it? How many words are in a chapter? Google it, how to find an agent. That's the battle that I went through personally to get my book on a shelf and have it become a number one bestseller. I, I went through all those steps and writing the book was not hard. And then you have to realize you got to sell the book, but then you have to also put your marketing hat on and get out there and tell your story and share it. Otherwise it'll just sit there and no one will even know you wrote the story and the components that go into the story, I think are just like everything else. There has to be a simple emotional journey with the beginning, middle and end. And there has to be a series of 
progressive complications that go throughout the story. And it has to be punctuated with wins and losses. And some of those things, whether it's in your squadron or in your daily life or whoever's thinking of writing a book, you have to share all the wins and the losses. Nobody wants to read a book that's all, you know, I, I was a bad person or this. It has to be I won something and then I lost it. And then I came back and you succeed and fail. And those are the stories that most people gravitate to. Those are the stories that most writers and producers or publishers have the most success with because the, the authors and the writers are very authentic. And they realize that, hey, that guy, Kevin, he may not want me talking about his failures in this book, but it's an important component to the story. And, you know, I could call Kevin and ask him, hey, do you mind if I share this part uh, of what you did or did not do in the squadron? And you may say yes or no. And even if the answer is no, there's, as long as it's truthful, there's no law against that. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of books written about people that say, you know, man, I did not agree to that. And you, you may not agree to it, but if you can't dispute the facts that it happened, you know, you just have to cut, roll with the punches, I guess. It, it makes Luckily me think- for me, people have called me a lot of things, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I had to get it right in the book because if I'd have gotten it wrong, the Marines would have eaten me alive for sure. It makes me think of um, Generation Kill with uh, Captain America, right? Someone had to tell history. I don't know if he was a, what do they call that? A, amalgamation of several bad officers or if he was an actual dude or if he was an actual bad officer. I don't know. This is one person's truth, which can be very different than another person's truth. Yeah. Well, Evan, Evan Wright wrote that story. And, okay. um, you know, that's a an interpretation of uh, not just maybe just one character. But again, when you're writing a piece, I would have loved to have written a book about all 300 Marines that I commanded in Ramadi and the soldiers, but nobody would read that book. Yeah. You, you can't write about everybody. So there's times too, even, even in nonfiction, I think where you take a little bit of creative artistic license and you make that character description emblematic of all of the all of the people that were in that uh event or that episode or that period of time and um you know jen kill i think was one of the first pieces that came out and again you know rudy's in it and um you know uh so so many other great veteran actors um john Wertus is in it um you know but they did a good job with that and is is hammy as it may seem to the general public like those are the things that happened um you know uh, swafford who wrote jarhead that didn't get endorsed by the marine corps because of the hazing that was going on after desert shield desert storm and they didn't want to take any part of it but as a guy that was there i think it's a pretty accurate description of of some of the hijinks for lack of a better word that go on in the military that used to be tolerated now they're they're not um but um you know you do have to find that balance as a, as a writer and as an artist how how to share different components of the story yeah yeah honesty i think is again and we brought this up earlier it's kind of that theme is if you're reading a book and the person isn't honest it, you can feel that you you know you kind of lose interest in the book but when someone sure. just bleeds out on the have you read uh rudy's book um Hero Living? Yeah, yeah, Hero Living. Oh, my God, yeah. Jesus, it's, the, it's, it's phenomenal. and honesty in that You know, book. people, yeah, anyone that knows or follows Rudy Reyes, everyone knows he's like, ah, it's Rudy, like he's super high energy. And, 
um, you know, he's always working out and that's his thing. And that that's his, his, his medicine, I think for lack of a better word, but you know, you read Hero Living by Rudy Reyes and then you understand, I didn't know that was Rudy because you talk about a guy that grew up uh, emotionally and physically scarred uh, through a, a tough family upbringings and being a foster kid and the struggles he had in the military, the struggles he had after the military, man, I tell you, when you read that, when you, when you know somebody too, and you, you read their story, you're like, wow, man, I had no idea that that person gone through it because that's a problem too, with the world of social media that we live in. We always pick and choose the best photos that look great or appealing on Instagram or Facebook. But until you, crack open the cover of a book and you find out the real details behind a person, man, I tell you, sometimes you're just blown away and you gain so much more respect for the individuals. Um, but yeah, it's a great book. I could not recommend it enough. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, this recon guy uh, full of muscle. And then he tells the story, like the most heartbreaking one is just being a child and being abused. And you're like, God damn, that's, 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 that's rough. Uh, it's tough to, to say uh, who have been, you know, the door kickers, the operators, you know, that segment, you know, or anybody in the military, that they don't like to use that word hero, but he does it in such a way that um, I think most people understand that have been through a situation. You know, he was a young child and his mom was in this dilemma of, you know, do I leave this bad relationship? Do I drive away? And, you know, he said yes. And right then, you know, he harkens back to, you know, that was my first hero moment. Like even as a young kid, like that, that's some, that's some insight. And I really, res- I really respect, uh, you know, that ability to share that, that component of someone's life. And there's a, there's a ton of great examples of it, but that's just one that, of a person we know well. I, I think it's also uh, a great eye opener for people. We all look up to the, you know, the operator types, how he struggled. Yeah. I mean, it allows you to feel more more human and more okay about it because it's, it's that, it's that humanity that we all share. Yeah. Some of us are more talented than others, I guess, and being able to control your adrenaline and, you know, uh, work through cold and jumping out of high altitudes. I mean, that's, the, that's the main separation between us. Uh, but again, on the, on the surface, we're all human. I mean, whether you're an officer, uh, in Ramadi or uh, a machine gunner. So no, absolutely. I, I always like to say, especially to your audience on 21 Gun Salute, Kevin, is I, I've said this to audiences of 5,000 to, to five. It, it, I don't care what you did in the military, whether you were turning a wrench on a helicopter or busting tires on a truck or kicking doors in Ramadi or Fallujah or flying a plane or ship, your service matters. And I, I'm grateful because it is absolutely the epitome of the word teamwork. And I, I will crush any veteran that ever gets in front of me and says, ah, well, sir, you know, I was just, I'm like, you were never just anything. <laughs> you were part of an elite organization and you were part of that less than one half of 1% that served. I, I mean, 330 million Americans, that is absolutely to be justifiably proud of. And to all the veterans that are out there that are served, not just in our generation, our Vietnam vets, our Korean War vets, and the the, the dwindling number of World War II vets are still alive. Their service matters, absolutely. Uh, are American veterans humble to a fault, except SEALs? We all know SEALs. 
what, what has two thumbs and operates but uh no 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 uh, and i joke i have some seal friends but um no american veterans humble to a fault you know we we you go to great britain and they wear their they wear their freaking ribbons on their sunday best uh but americans we put that away and we say you know that's not it feels uh, like we're bragging yeah i th- i think so i wish I wish I had my shirt on from yesterday. It was uh, from my friends. Uh, they sent me a shirt. It's uh, AMDDSS, and uh, it's a shirt that says "Regular Forces" on it. Um, <laughs> so you know, you know, obviously, special forces have to have, wear a shirt and put it over everything That's because so they're funny. special. I love that. Regular forces. You, I gotta find that. Yeah, regular regular forces. There's uh, a. I wish, God, I wish I had that shirt on. There's a T-shirt that says, um, "We always say high speed, low drag." There's one that says medium speed some drag <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think in in public we're never really accused in large groups of being humble or shy as veterans or, or active duty service members but in in private i i think that most people are uh, humble to a fault and i think it really applies kevin to transitioning veterans where they don't own the accomplishments of what they've done, whether that's four years in the military or 24 years in the military, that type of experience and the levels of responsibility that are thrust on such young people uh, is immense. And that was one of the things that I realized too, after I wrote Echo and Amadi, I look back at all the character interviews and descriptions that I did and, and reading through them. And the one thing that really struck, struck me was they're all 18, 19 year old kids or a 20 year old sergeant. And they're responsible for the lives of four to 15 guys or a 22 year old lieutenant who's responsible for 45 guys. And not just the Marines and under their command or charge, but the lives of the people that we fought amongst in a city of over 300,000 people in Ramadi. So, to not take responsibility or ownership of that level of responsibility, I think is something that when I talk about transition or I talk about leadership, especially in military communities, um, I think is important because they should take ownership of that. Or, or and there's a, a fine line between sounding like a braggart and also owning up to what you've done. I yeah. think you can absolutely find the balance, but you should be proud and, and find a way, I think, to translate that into civilian speak, because a lot of guys struggle with that too, as you know, is their language, their lexicon in general is just permeated by this military jargon into the average civilian who thinks, you know, we just march around with a rifle on our shoulder all day and then jump out of planes. Like that's just not the case. So, um, but can we get better at it? I think so. Yeah. And in its purest form, uh, military is a meritocracy, right? I mean, you, we all, we all go in, they, people like to say it's, uh, it's socialism. All right. I, I get that. I suppose, um, we all wear the same clothes. We all get paid the same at the very initial point, but you earn your charge. At least you should anyways, the people who are paying attention yeah. to what you're doing. Uh, and, and that is, you know, it, like you said, if you're a 20 year old, uh, Sergeant or whatever, or, or a 25 year old second Lieutenant, you, you earned that and take that with you. I mean, when you get into the real world, um, yeah, I've oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I don't know if I'll get struck by lightning by saying this, but I, I don't think the military is as true 
a meritocracy as they think they are because there's plenty of guys, and I'm sure you experienced this in the Air Force, that say something to the effect that, oh, I'm due for promotion next month because it's a point system. You get time in service, time in grade, you get educational points. So it's maybe not so much based on how well you perform, but an accumulation of merits that thrust you into a position of increased responsibility and authority. Uh, Whereas I'm sure you've also seen plenty of guys in the military or in the private sector where they get advancement and you think, how the fuck (laughs) did this guy get promoted, man? Like, is that even possible? Yeah. And it happens. And, and it's it's because it's not a true meritocracy where there's this, I guess, really granular, granular vetting process um, to, to make sure only the best sift through to make that fine, fine powder. I think we do a very good job at it, better than most organizations. And we're pretty, pretty scrutinous as to, you know, who we let into our communities. And in the aviation community, I think you know this as well, um, because you know I'm a, a big fan of not just my my C-130 Bubba's, but uh, <laughs> aviators in general, having spent some time with them, um, they will eat their own for breakfast. Oh, if yeah. you do not pack the gear behind the, the stick or in the back of a, a, a transport, they'll, they'll crush you. Uh, the infantry is just the same, and, and that can be said for any small community in the military. I've seen engineers smack a captain co-pilot off the side of the head with a, a, a at the time we used the mag lights, uh, surefire was like a special light, but you had the mag lights. Uh, I'm sorry about that, sir. And it's like, you know, yeah, you eat your own. I, you know, I, uh, I have disdain for the whole, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, stolen valor people like those guys got to get crushed and they have to be publicly shamed. Um, but the, the guy that is, is walking around himself in for awards or, you know, all I say to that is like, man, that guy's got to look at himself in the mirror every morning, not me. So, you know, whatever, man, I I don't get too spun on it, especially in in the, in the veteran spaces. Um, I, I never like to be one of those people again, that, you know, my service counts more than your service or, you know, my PTS is worse than yours because I did this, you know, everybody's got things they deal with. And, um, I, Again, you know, you got to look at yourself in the in the mirror every morning. And and um, you know, one great example was um, I was up in Hollywood, and uh, there was a, a veteran. Uh, it was a writer or actor. I don't want to mention any names. Uh, not that I, I usually do mention names, just throw <laughs> people out there. But it's an ambiguous story. But they, you know, they introduce themselves as I'm a combat veteran, and I'm thinking. Well, there it was someone in the Navy and they were on a ship and, you know, I didn't say anything. I actually went and Googled the DOD regs on what qualifies a person to be a combat veteran because you get, I think, educational or hiring points in some, you know, civil service jobs. And, you know, technically, if you're in a theater of operations that is receiving imminent danger pay or hazardous duty pay, or I think it's imminent danger pay, like combat pay is what most people call it. You're, you're qualified. So you could be in the bowels of the big steel ship floating in the, you know, Persian Gulf and, you know, again, be relatively safe, um, but still call yourself that. But there's people that really play that card. And, you know, when we talk, uh, Donnie and I talk, Rudy, Vince, Andy, all these guys we know, you know, we, we just try not to talk about 
you know, being a veteran, even though we're kind of permeating the discussion with this, I, I think at the end of the day is we, no one cares. And again, if we're talking about meritocracy, the 24 years I spent in the military, both in that's not what I'm doing now. What are you doing now? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, great. I wrote a bestseller. That's what I did two years ago. What are you doing now? Um, what stories are you sharing now? How are you helping people now? I think with the Reverend Warriors, with SaveTheBrave.org, with, uh, you know, 21 Gun Salute, or the Breakdown, all these things we're involved with, that's what we're doing now. And those are the things and stories and being a lifelong leader that I like to share within our community and other communities who want to know what we do. That's that's what it takes, man, because my my commission didn't expire when I left the Marine Corps. Uh, my leadership didn't stop when I left Ramadi. I still feel very privileged to write letters of recommendation for guys now, to speak across the country, to universities, veteran organizations, policing organizations, private sector, you know, to be able to share those stories and people can see through our lens uh, what we do and what brought us to this point, I think is probably one of the most important things that makes me happy now when I get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, I I like to, you know, I'll, I'll meet folks on hikes or just I'll see someone pop up on uh, Instagram and I'll say, hey, man, do you want to come on the show? And they're like, I, w- I didn't do anything. I was a machine gunner. And you're like, no, that's the point. I want you to tell your yeah. story. And then if you ask the right questions, they tell a few stories. And now a little bit of their experience in this whole 20 years of war was just shared with people. Um, yeah, no one realizes yeah, that. I, I, never say, I never say no to being on, on a show or there's no one that I, I would not have on the show, uh, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Because... And, and I love it too when when guys who are just doing these startup pods and they 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 really lay it on as if I'm some big deal or something like who the who the fuck am I man like yeah I'll be <laughs> on your show like it doesn't take much just I got to get it on my calendar because I do a lot of things but uh, when someone reaches out and says hey would you consider being like of course let's crush it you know I'm I'm happy to do it yeah um. Man, I just lost my train of thought. Are you considered a Mustang, right? My, my yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I'm a Mustang. Uh, okay. I, I, I was enlisted for four years, and then when I was in, when when I was in college, uh, I, I, I drilled as a machine gunner with a reserve unit, so I still stay connected even oh, though okay. I was in college. And then after I graduated college, then I got my commission. So I was active duty, and then still wanted to stay around the Marines. So I, I hung out in this reserve unit up in Waukegan, Illinois, which is where I was born, um, and then got my commission. So. Um, yeah, for the listeners that may not know, a Mustang is enlisted and officer, kind of a horse of different breeds. Yeah. People often ask me, did being enlisted make you a better officer? And the answer is always the same, Kevin. No, it, it did not make me a better officer. I think it. the answer I always give is it, it absolutely gave me better perspective and appreciation for that young Marine's time and what they go through, the, the type of pressure, the type of disconnection they may be um, dealing with from their family and understanding that the Marine Corps and the military do a lot of things great in the training pipeline. But the one thing you can't do is you can't erase 18 years of pattern behavior overnight or over a eight to 11 week period through basic training. And those are the type of things you deal with. Um, 
But in contrast from, you know, 1989 when I enlisted to 2006, I think the one thing that I will speak about that changed for the better is the cultural understanding of how we employ our military forces in different environments. I think even when we fought in 1991 during Desert Shield, Desert Storm in the Arab culture, we we didn't get that immersed in it because it didn't boil over to this insurgent warfare. Whereas in 2006 and 2007, at the height of the insurgency, where every pocket of resistance was literally boiling over into the burners of the stove and Ramadi was the place they chose to fight us, I think we had a better understanding of the culture we were fighting in. And now, 10, 12 years later, I still think we can do better at that. And I just read General Mattis's book uh, by Bing West, uh, Chaos. And I think that, although I never served under Jim Mattis, I, I, you know, I consider him a friend. He's a fellow magnificent bastard. He served in 2-4. Um, he just sent me a signed copy of his book. It's, you know, one of the things I really like. Um, <laughs> but his book is spot on about understanding culture. So from two decades of perspective, I think that our military and, our, and I, even – even the American culture, I think we understand ourselves better. For me, moving forward and, and looking into the future, one of the questions I have is how do we understand and embrace this technological culture that is at the forefront of everything we do, not just in our society, but as a military and as a warfighting organization, I think moving into the future, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we we need to understand the technological culture of the enemy we're fighting. And I did a panel discussion uh, last year and all these smart guys, you know, you're sitting up on stage and everyone was asked, you know, you know, we're talking about all this kinetic stuff. And, you know, I, I was thinking to myself and I wrote it and I was like, well, what's worse? Will America be more accepting um, of, a, of an electronic attack on our, our infrastructure or banking system, or a platoon of 40 Marines gets gunned down in an ambush and there's caskets with flags coming across. What's the bigger risk to our national security, Kevin? I'm going to say it's it's the electronic attack. It's that Stanford or, or, or Cambridge or MIT trained uh, operative from you know a, 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 the Chinese government who has now sitting in their high rise in Shanghai, sipping a latte, attacking our systems that cripples everything we do. Well, look at this Not virus. 40 guys <laughs> that, you know, hypothetically. Yeah. Yeah. What? No, I know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it could go from technological to, you know, nuclear, biological, chemical, um, all of those things. 9 uh, happened. People felt like they were sacrificing for maybe a month or two months once the war kicked off you know the people who who raised their hands went and then everyone just kind of forgot about it people went to work no one really sacrificed like they did in world war ii or vietnam when the numbers were a lot higher who were actually going over and being drafted and then this virus hits and suddenly we have gosh i would say if you if you take out vietnam 50 years of people who really haven't had to sacrifice anything and now here they are yeah. asked to sacrifice a lot, a shit ton. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute, that, time out. That is something, and I, I was on uh, 
the Circle of Insight podcast yesterday with uh, Dr. Carlos Vasquez, and we were talking about this, and and I kind of told him that I've always been that type of person that maybe this sounds a little perverse, but <laughs> I kind of revel in other people's misery as an infantry <laughs> guy, as a grunt. You know, when someone's suffering worse than you, you're like, yeah, I can get through this. It's not going to be that bad. And now when I go out, and, and this isn't anything to laugh about. I'm not being, you know, flippant about it. But there's a line outside of Home Depot. You got to go in to get supplies or the grocery store. They, there's a balance. And there's people, Americans, bitching and complaining about this. And I harken back to my days in Ramadi where people would drive from Baghdad over to the gas station, the capital T gas station in Ramadi. And they'd wait in line for probably three, four hours to fill their car up with gas and the tanks of uh, gasoline cans they had in their trunks in one of the most oil rich nations in the world where you think gas was falling out of the sky. So Americans are getting a little dose of maybe just some perspective is be grateful for what we have fought for and for what we enjoy through our, 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 our system of democracy here in America. Yeah. Yeah. People really have to be appreciative of it. And, you know, if, if there's silver linings, I guess that's one, uh, people are going to appreciate that ability to just run into the grocery store again. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I know there's a lot of heightened anxiety in cities like New York or Chicago or or LA Metro, um, where that heightened anxiety has got to be more stressful than living in a ranch in Southern California. And, uh, but people would say like, I know, Oh, are you stressed out? And I'm like, nah, not really. Cause you know, I've been on ship. I've been, <laughs> you know, I've been isolated for weeks and weeks on end. Uh, so anyone who's in the Navy or Marine Corps or has been on a deployment can really understand, you know, you just kind of have to make do and, and you understand also there's light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to get off the deployment. You're going to get off the ship. Um, you're going to find ways to adapt, to read a book, do something, you read more when you're on deployment than you ever do. So if people aren't reading right now or listening to audio books, I mean, geez, you're, you're missing out. Yeah. Uh, before we, we end, I just realized we've been going on for almost an hour. Uh, I wanted to thank you for writing about first time I've ever seen it written about, and I was shocked to find it in your book was the, uh, the angel flights. We didn't call them angel flights in the, in the air force. Um, the Marines took care of the, the Marine, uh, KIAs, but we would, we would take everything else. And I, and I, yeah. I, I look back on it and it's one of the more vivid memories of, of my service is those damn flights with the chem lights and the, uh, uh, boxes with the flags on them. There's just something there that, and for the listeners, an angel flight is when there's a KIA and, and you're taking them out of country and then they start the process over to Dover Air yeah. Force Base, and we would a lot of there was a lot of similarities. You know, if if we had a um, we'll call it an angel flight, we wouldn't be carrying anything else. We would go in and do the whole you know process. I don't know if I don't know if any other airframes did them. I felt like we were doing a lot of them. Uh, Christmas Eve, actually, you know, oh six, I want to say we were we were doing them. But yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. It, it was one of those things throughout the interview and creative process. I, you know, I I really. I really was thinking about that. And, you know, I called, um, you know, Mike Perkins up, the call sign Dolby and, uh, just met him down the road here at rainbow Oaks cafe, uh, off the 15. And we sat there and I shut the fuck up and just started taking notes. And it, it just kind of boiled over into that chapter. And I thought, man, this is a great 
period, uh, you know, in the book to talk about something that's that was really important to the warfighter and really descriptive to the general public that don't understand that when we lose someone on the battlefield, it is sacred and we do not miss a step. And those people that have to do those things that are flying at 30,000 feet and that maybe touch ground for, you know, a few hours or a, a day or two uh, to get gas or food uh, and to have to do those things and clean up our, uh, you know, clean up the mess that happens on the battlefield. I think that that was a really important story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's, what's next? Do you write any more books? Sounds like you said you're working on a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, you know, working on two other books right now, concurrently, uh, I've, you know, still write a lot of op-eds for, um, you know, occasionally for, you know, Fox News, USA Today, Town Hall. I, I stay busy writing. I, I think that any writers or artists are out there like, just write. Uh, you, I've got a dozen or, or a hundred starting points or pieces on my desktop that, you know, <laughs> you just got to write every day and, and, and be creative. Um, so uh, the, the closest alligator, yeah, there you go, man. Yeah, you just stay at it. That's one pile. Um, yeah. The, the, the closest alligator to the boat though, is, uh, working on this full length feature documentary. Um, and the, the team that I have on board again, um, you know, we've, we've written this Anthony Zucker, uh, blessed off on it. And he jumped on board as so I'm very fortunate to have him on board and we're looking for the, the other executive producers to come in with the money so we can start filming this. Um, I can't talk about it, but it, it consumes a lot of my time to, uh, again, step into an area. Uh, it doesn't say filmmaker or documentarian on my LinkedIn profile, man, but it's something I feel that's important that these stories have to be told. Um, uh, you know, obviously my speaking engagements nationwide have been kanked for, uh, you know, foreseeably until, you know, July, August, September, until we get back at this. But I, I don't even know if that's going to happen this year. Yeah. So the documentary has really consumed a lot of my time to make sure we, we tell the story right. And it is tied to um, the book a, a little bit, um, but it's more, more so a documentary tied to people. And I think that, uh, again, I want to be one of those storytellers in our generation that doesn't wait. I don't want to be Ken Burns. I don't want to wait 50 years until the Vietnam. And I love that documentary and I love the work that Burns has done, but why, why do we got to wait so long? So that's, that's one of the important things to do is, is if a guy comes to me and says, you know, Hey, I have a great story. I said, well, tell me why it's great. And then here's, here's what we should do to make sure everyone hears your story. And that's one of the things I like to, you know, stay active with, um, you know, being the executive director of SaveTheBrave.org keeps me busy. I'm also the president of the Two Four Association, uh, and, and a couple of nonprofits. The so Two Two I'm Four. I'm just sitting around my studio eating bonbons. <laughs> yeah. Did you say it's called the Two Four? Yeah, two, Second Battalion, Fourth Marines oh, okay. Association, uh, magnificent bastards. It's uh, started off as a 20th year reunion for the Battle of Dido for our Vietnam vets, and several years ago they asked me to step up and and take over and. and we've grown uh, since I took over. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a great, another great way for, for us to stay connected. If you serve in that battalion, uh, as a magnificent bastard through any generation. So, uh, that, that's, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing to stay busy. If, if people want to find me on social media, uh, it's not hard. Just go to Instagram at echo and Ramadi. Uh, I'm at 
Twitter and Facebook are the same, but follow me on Instagram at Echo and Ramadi. And again, if you're, you need something to read, go to Amazon. Uh, the book's always on sale. It's on Audible, uh, Kindle, hardcover, paperback. You can go to Amazon.com. Just type in Echo and Ramadi. You'll find it there. And uh, just so people know, a portion of the proceeds get donated to SaveTheBrave.org. So you don't just read the book and, and hear about this story we've been talking about on the pod here on 21 Guns Loop, but I also donate back to my own organization. So you're helping vets. Do you think we've made a dent uh, in, in veteran suicide? I know we can't cure it. Uh, there's no way. But do you think we're bringing it down? Yes. I, I think uh, everybody's doing their part. It'll, you know, there's some that say, you know, 22 to zero. I, I don't think it'll ever be zero. Uh, I'm a pragmatist in, in that regard. People are always going to have issues um, that outreach programs and, and uh, Western medicine and therapy and counseling cannot find a cure for. Um, I, I would, I, I would hope that it would be zero, but I'm realistic, but I absolutely think we've, we've made an impact and we've changed people's lives. And much like the firefighters, the cops, the soldiers, the intelligence experts, you know, we never see the results. We never see that win that um, we would like to see for a metric of success. But you have to have a little bit of faith in people that when you conduct an outreach event or a program where you have a system in place that you've fished a thousand people through and, and they've, they've gone through that, those waters that some of them are going to make it upstream. And that, that's what I'm hopeful for. And uh, to anyone that's doing that in the nonprofit organization, whether you're a veteran nonprofit or anything else, I think you're making a difference. And, and that's more than, than most people are willing to do. A lot of people talk about it, but people like you and, 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 and Donnie and Reverend Warriors and what we do at Save the Brave, we're doing it. We're, yeah. we're putting our time in it and we're doing it all for free. I don't get a paycheck for this. Everything that is donated to SaveTheBrave.org, we put back into veteran programs, period. And, and, and that's kind of, that was the, uh, the movie that we were going to go see out in, um, in LA was Andrew Marr's, uh, Tales from the Blast Factory, except I forget the name of the, uh, the, the documentary itself. Um, but he, I heard his story and I, he got Something me thinking, explosion. What was it called? Silent explosion. Quiet or, explosions, quiet quiet explosions. Quiet yeah, explosions. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. it's an important thing, but no, it's an important, it's an important message because there's, uh, there's something for everybody, I think. Yeah. And every single person, whether it's on this podcast or whatever medium it is, sharing your stories of success coupled with those failures is probably one of the most important things. And sure. it's not a one one size fits all. I think that's why I love uh, what we're doing through this medium. And, uh, you know, maybe you like to hike, you know, within, in silky shorts, maybe you don't, maybe fishing's your thing. Maybe it's dogs. Maybe it's, you know, jumping out of airplane. I don't know, but you know, we've created so much to do so many options for our community, at least that there's ways to do it. And one of the things I love best too, is inviting the public into these events, because here's one thing. And and I I think it's important. To, to close with is to any veteran organization out there, invite the public to the events, not just for fundraisers, but let them see what it is our guys do. And that it's not a bunch of boozy vets sitting around a VFW telling war stories. Cause that's not what we do. That's not what we're all about when we get together. And to see that, I think 
really helps share the message of what we're doing. So keep, if you're doing that already, keep up the great work and keep up the fire and, you know, keep up what you're doing on this podcast, man. Cause I'm a fan and uh, I'm glad after five tries, we finally knocked yeah, this out yeah, of the park, yeah. brother. It won't be the last time. I keep telling everyone, now that I have your your number, you're, you're going to come back <laughs> on and, and share more stories. That's good. I'm actually, I'm hanging out with, uh, well, not hanging out. I'm going to be on his podcast, uh, Jason Piccolo's tonight. I know you're friends with him. Uh, yeah. Another, yeah, another mutual yeah. friend. It's funny how we all know each other. Like you start talking to people and everyone yeah. knows each other. Who does, who doesn't Jason know? I know That's he does question. know. Every, and he... He's the guy that gets out there and produces, produces, produce. Like he's always doing something. Yeah. Um, just a busy yeah. guy and fucking so nice. It's like I'm I'm waiting for like his his bad side to spring up on me. Like from the day I met him, big smile, big handshake, just just really really nice know. guy. Yeah, we were at Shot Show together in January. Oh, nice. And, uh, then out in DC, I, I did a trip out in DC and uh, got to hang in with him and and our good friend Dan Gabriel, who did a great documentary called Masool. Uh, about that yeah. fight in 2015. We but, just uh, connected. Yeah, Jason knows everybody, man. Just when I think my Rolodex is thick, man, Jason just. And anytime I need away. any anytime I need an interview, I just contact him. Like, hey, give me give me somebody. <laughs> yeah, and he's one of those dudes that shares the love too. It's not yeah. like, oh, let me check with him and see if he'll talk to you, Kevin. He's like, nope. Here's yep. the email over to you guys. He's just like us. Uh, there's no, you know, you know, playing hide the winky. It's you know, yeah. what you see is what you get with Jason. We love him, man. He's, nice. he's doing great things. All right, Scott, I appreciate it. Finally, we made it happen. Uh, probably means a comet's going to hit the earth or something uh, because <laughs> the impossible has happened. It's great, man. Hey, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. And tell the listeners, thank you. Absolutely. Take care, man. Set the